0: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal or financial product advice.
1: Welcome to My Millennial Property. You're joined by John Pidgeon and Emily Wallace.
2: I am here and I have a bit of a good news story to share. Now, it is one of my own stories, but I think it's relatable to um, people who are considering... Getting their property refinanced. Now, John, the people who listen every week will know I've had a bit of um, a turbulent time with one of my investment properties. Tenants made a bit of a mess of it. Long story short, I had to put a fair bit of money into fixing it. Now, before I put the money into it, I got a valuation done from a lender and that valuation came in at $400,000. And I was a bit disappointed because previously it's been valued at $420,000. So, it looks like I have lost money in my right. property. Yes. Now, I spent, um, spent $18,000 to fix this property, right? Not a small amount of cash, Yeah don't get me started. Now, a lot of that will be covered by insurances and whatnot, and I'll get the bond back or the rest of it. But have a guess what the new valuation came in at after I had fixed up this property.
1: Oh, uh, given the fact that I, I don't look at a lot of Instagram, um, I'm taking a guess here. <laughs> okay, Four, good. 450 I I wanted
2: 450 That's what I wanted. 485, John. 485. Winning. So that is my good news story. And also goes to show that it does pay to fix things because the feedback from the valuation was, look, we can see past the mess, but you know, you've got a few holes in carpets, you've got a hole in a wall, you've got drawing on one of the walls as well. Somebody took to the wall as their, you know, masterpiece for artwork. So fixing that up although I did have to outlay it, it did, it did pay off. So just, um, if you are considering doing a bit of enhancement to your property before you get it revalued, not a bad idea. And if you look back, I think at last week's episode, we did cover off on, uh, equity and how to utilize that for your next purchase. So it's really important to maximize that where you can.
1: Mm. So just on that, uh, and we don't want to deep dive too hard on it, but I think there's some good key learnings from, from this. Um, number one is if you had your time again, could we have avoided that with, uh, and I'm I'm not saying you could have or you couldn't, but I, I just want uh, to look at that to say, well, because I've always said personally, if I've got a bad tenant, I've got a bad property manager.
2: Yeah. Tricky one, because um, the issue – as to why this got so bad. And it never was always this bad, obviously. Um, the the reason why was the limited ability to inspect properties due to the environment we were facing at the time, right. that being COVID. So, um, unfortunately, it unraveled in the time when we couldn't physically inspect and the photos they uploaded of the property for virtual inspections were more than fine. Of course they were because they're not mm. going to show the damage.
1: No.
2: Right. So, yeah, the I mean, I think, you know, in a normal environment, yes, um, that could have been avoided. And certainly, I'm in the process of picking a new tenant and I have learned a few lessons. So, I'm very cautious as to who I put in now. Um, and yeah, looking forward to having a good tenant to make a good investment property.
1: Yeah, totally.
2: Now, enough about me. This is about you guys, the listeners, because you have delivered once again on your questions that you would like John and I to thrash out together. And we love doing this because, uh, as always, we want to deliver on what you want to hear. So, first things first, let's throw to this one, John, from Kathleen. Kathleen has asked, land banking in regional Vic, yay or nay? Interesting question. Sounds simple, but is it?
1: Yeah, so let, let's. Uh, it's a good question, Kathleen. Um, the short answer for me is probably nay, uh, but I just want to outline why and, and also give a definition for everyone listening as to what land banking actually is. So essentially, the philosophy behind land banking is uh, presuming that the land will go up in value over time. Now, when someone goes and buys a block of land, they can, it may be subdividable um, or it may not, but the intention is to to build something on it at some stage down the track um, or they may have just, um, yeah, bought uh, an option to buy that block of land, which is a, another conversation in itself. So Kathleen's saying in regional Victoria at the moment, there's a bit of a, uh, I suppose, a land shortage. So she's maybe thinking, well, i go and buy a block of land for, i don 't know two hundred thousand dollars and i 'm just going to sit on that block for the next five years until uh, land becomes even more of a commodity than it is today, and hopefully it 's worth three hundred thousand dollars right so without having done anything other than hold the costs of that uh, of that land uh, we 've made some money right so and so in theory, it sounds okay I, I suppose the downside is there's no income associated with that land over the journey. So if we're holding it for five years, there's no income and we're holding a debt. Now, if we're putting purely cash into that investment and we own that block out, outright, then it's a different conversation. Uh, but can that cash be used somewhere else for better income producing purposes would be my question to Kathleen. But So yeah, that that's a roundabout way of saying nay. I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's whilst land does go up in value. It's not guaranteed to go up in value and there's no income coming in from that uh, particular block.
2: Maybe a solution to this would be a house on a very large piece of land right? that has subdividable potential like you can maybe cut pieces off which is how a lot of farmers make a fair chunk of money they have these massive acreages of you know hectares of land and they over time cut them off get them titled and sell them off which is great but i guess i agree with you i think not having an income from that land, because it's literally just a piece of land, maybe a solution, um, which might be, you know, a higher cost associated with the purchase of it, but at least you do have some rental return coming through, would be a house on a much larger piece of land that you could cut off into pieces and sell off and make your money that way. But I can see the opportunistic, you know, piece of this all being that, as we always say, they're not making any more land. So, if you could, afford to sit on it for a couple of years and then sell it off then maybe you could have a good return but Mm. I think the key thing is there if you can afford to do so uh, and that means the repayments every month
1: yeah and and obviously it depends on where that land's actually located as well like is it desirable land or is it just land left over that no one wants because it's in a flood zone or it's uh, it's got a lot of slope about it and the site costs are going to be too great to build on like it's got to be desirable land to begin with and, and and a lot of people people try to do it in land estates where all the houses will be up and built around them but they'll still have this block remaining that's not built on and as a result, there, there is uh, an increased value in that land because uh, everything's been built out and everyone wants to live there, but no one can get themselves a block of land. So that that's where it may work. Uh, but understanding that a lot of estates do have covenants on the purchases saying you must build within a, a certain time period. So just do your research on that.
2: Most definitely. Now, a bit of a change of pace. James asks, "How do I know when I should cut losses on a bad investment property purchase?" And he's put a skull emoji next to it, which I find quite entertaining. Um, <laughs> so, so how do we know, you know, when we should probably sell up? It might be at a loss. It might be at a break-even point. Um, when effectively, you know, a property could be draining us of serviceability, but also of money in the meantime, if if we have to keep putting money into it to keep it thriving and surviving. So, what are your thoughts on this one, John? I I mean, as much as I am an investor myself, I'm probably not one to directly advise on when to cut losses on one.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's uh, uh, Ego's got a lot to do with it. I don't know if the skull Mm -hmm. emoji is is the ego or not, I don't know. But uh, I'm (laughs) actually doing this For a client at the moment Uh, He came on board At the start of the year And has a A large portfolio And I mean really large. But there's a lot of underperforming properties in that portfolio. So I've taken to it with a stick and and said we need to get rid of these properties because I think in the last eight years they've done next to nothing and actually gone backwards. And I can't see them returning to any sort of uh, great outcome in the, in the next five to 10 years. So let's move them on. He doesn't need the cash, but he doesn't like losing money either. So let's just make a decision where we have to do drop our ego because we bought it in the first place. It was our responsibility. Uh, but we're saying, look, let's move on to to, to something greener. Um, in this situation, I always say, is it giving you capital growth or is it giving you cash flow? If it's giving you neither of those two, then there's a really strong argument for getting rid of that property. Um, if it's, if it's uh, burning at your uh, wallet every month because it's costing you a heap of dough and it hasn't gone up in value, which it sounds though it probably hasn't in this situation, then we do need to um, look at cutting our losses there. Um, the other part of that would be if we do sell it, what are we taking out of it? Right, so we may have paid that property down, and even though it's we've um, hasn't given us the growth outcome we needed, we still might be taking 100k from it to go and do something else with. So if that's the example, then we we that's a, a real tick in the let's sell it column because we can go and buy something that's going to be far superior. But if we're selling it at a loss that's when we need to think, hang on a minute, it might not be costing us money to hold. Yeah, I'd like to, it to be going up in value, but let's just hold it for a, another few years uh, without too much impact and hopefully we can get back what we at least paid for it or, um, or maybe even a small profit.
2: Yeah, and I think one of the biggest things from this is also um, for people to become a bit more reflective on their next move forward. So, if you have felt like you've maybe made an investment mistake because you know you thought that area was going to be great and it turns out it wasn't. And as you mentioned, John, ego plays a large factor in in this, coming to terms with this. But one would suggest that for your next investment purchase, you might want to have a few more strategic people in your corner to be able to go forward and not um, let history repeat itself. Because you know what, I think everybody likes to it's a bit of an Aussie thing. We all like to think we know what's happening with the property market and oh, I got a tip from my uncle's best friend that this area is going to take off. But unless you do it for a living and you, and you uh, engage with somebody who studies the data, the numbers and the projected growth, there's no real way of knowing it. Um, so, I think there is a notion of stick to what you know best and outsource the rest. That's my motto in life anyway. Stick to what you're good at, outsource the rest. That's what uh, professionals are there for. Um, and yeah, that would be my, my wise words for anybody moving forward off a bad investment is have the right people in your corner for the next one yeah. um, would uh, be wise. I agree. Now let's move on to the next one here. So, we've got a question from Lauren and Lauren asks, insurances when buying into a body corporate or a strata arrangement, what should I look for? So, just to clarify for those who don't know what that means, a body corporate is a company that manages and oversees the running of an apartment block or a unit block that is a strata title so it means in that block there might be some common land such as a driveway car parks maybe corridors maybe in some cases they have a pool and a gym in those fancy buildings and so Lauren's question is asking when I'm buying into that block the body corporate or the owner's corporation they have a level of insurance um, for the block and she's asking what do I need to look out for Now, I come across this a lot, particularly the difference being when it is in a small block of villa units. So villa units, single level ones that are all side by side. They've been there since the 60s or the 70s. And there's just this um, agreement that the body corporate looks after the shared driveway insurance and the building insurance. Now, one thing I have learned along the way of dealing with these sorts of properties is it is essential to know exactly what that insurance covers from a lending perspective more than anything. Because the building insurance, particularly when you have situations with shared walls and the shared driveways, it might only be for a certain amount. um, And your lender might need you to have more than what's already currently provided.
1: That's a good idea.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I guess we're not in, we're not insurance specialists by any means, um, but I always advise people to provide that certificate of currency to their mortgage broker, who will be able to inform you if that cover is sufficient for the loan you're going forward for, and what the lender needs to see from you, or if you actually need to take out additional building insurance to make sure that you're covered in the event something tragic happens to your property.
1: Mm. And obviously factor that in before we buy it, ideally, mm. so that we. Know Know what our running costs for that year are going to be and, and also get an understanding of that sinking fund which is a combined um monies that uh, that the body corporate holds to be able to continue with uh, improvements and upgrades and, and just see what has been done and what has been claimed because yeah, I had a, a clarity call with someone a few weeks ago where there's like $40,000 of works need to be done and they're not sure who's paying for it. They think it's the council's responsibility but council's wiping their hands of it even though they're going to fix it, they, uh, they're also not paying for it. So it is coming under the insurance policy for the body corporate Uh, but uh, it's looking at the record books and seeing what has that body corporate had to claim on in the last eight to 10 years before you taking ownership of it.
2: Definitely. Now we've got some great questions to still get through. We're going to take a short break and we'll get to them in just a moment. Now, Andrea asks an interesting one. And sorry, I didn't brief you on this before, John. Sometimes I'll let you know what I'm going to ask and sometimes I just throw it at you. So yes. here we go, throw it at you. Um, Andrea asks, what is the type of data that people mean when they say, inverted commas, due diligence?
1: Ooh, Great question. It is.
2: Great question. Because yes. everyone's like, oh, you got to do your, your DD, your due diligence <laughs> on this property, bit of lingo. Yeah, um, straight what talk. does it actually mean?
1: What does it actually mean? I I think there's uh, intrinsic and extrinsic due diligence. So, what's happening in your life and what's happening external, which is basically the property markets and the the finance, uh, the climate of of lending and um, maybe governments and and just everything that's happening that I call beyond your control. So, first of all, I'd look at your own backyard and say, what is in your control? I need to do some due diligence on myself, uh, understand my cash flow management, understand my goals and, and what I want long term, understand what my current portfolio is doing for me, income expenses, uh, running costs, etc. And once I've done all of that, then I can look external and say, right, how much will the banks lend me uh, what areas are identified for that price point that I can come in at if I can borrow five hundred thousand and my ceiling is say six hundred thousand what markets can I get myself into and then what type of properties are going to be in demand in those particular markets and why would I buy there? What are the rents going to be in those areas um, like it DD is, is so wide and elaborate, isn't it? You can go on for days. But again, talking to someone yesterday, they've gone on too long. They've been looking for two years with DD and internal, external, beating themselves up, um, getting FOMO when in actual fact, there's overkill. So I, I think you've got to hit a sweet spot where I've, I've looked in my own backyard, I've done my own research for my personal life, And I've looked at external and know what I can buy for the money I've got and the yield I need and the type of property is going to be best bang for buck and and best outcome, away I go.
2: Yeah, and I think you know, these due diligence measures, there's not a list that like is a golden list that you must cross off as such. I think definitely what you mentioned there, speaking about looking into yourself to begin with and making sure that you're actually ready to go into a property purchase is key. And then obviously the the next steps that come with that around finance, around the property itself. We have done an episode on what to look out for on a macro and micro level when looking at a property. So, things like council planning and projects and uh, infrastructure and things like that which you can certainly refer back to that goes into a bit more detail Um, but hopefully that has clarified your question Andrea as to what DD actually means and what to look for.
1: Uh, Just uh, to round that out uh, Emily with Andrea's question there it also may mean, everyone's at a different stage, right? So it, it may mean finding your team of people. It may mm-hmm. mean finding a mortgage broker to begin with. It may mean finding a buyer's agent. It may mean finding an accountant. It, it, uh, yeah, so it, it comes on various levels depending on uh, have you invested in before, what your mindset is, as you mentioned, and uh, a whole range of other areas.
2: Now, i change the pace again here. Um, I like this. Elizabeth has asked commercial property. That is her question. Commercial property, question mark. (laughs) So um, for, for context, I put on my Instagram... What do you want us to cover off in the next episode with questions and things like that? Now, commercial property is not one that we often touch on, and there's no particular reason that we don't. Probably mainly because you and I both buy a lot of residential um, properties in our professional fields outside of what we do with the podcast. But commercial property, can I say, my dad has been harping on about me getting into commercial property for God knows how long, and I I do understand there's benefits to it, but my personal risk profile i'm a bit nervous to take the plunge yeah. like it seems like a maybe it's just because they're physically bigger and and dollars wise there's a lot more riding on it but commercial property have you had many dealings in commercial property or what are your thoughts
1: yeah, it's it's a bit above our pay grade or, or left to right <laughs> of our pay grade. Um, so we won't go into too much detail on it, other than give our own thoughts and and, and opinions on it. But uh, essentially, people ask me all the time, "Should I buy commercial property?" And I've got clients that have got commercial property, etc. Uh, I think the distinct difference is uh, you need a larger deposit because you're playing a bigger game. So. Most commercial properties are going to be more expensive than something that's equivalent residential nearby, right? So we may have to spend a million dollars to get into any sort of commercial property in in most larger locations. Uh, And the the second part of that is the lenders will generally want a 30% deposit. Not or 10 or 20. So if we can scrape into a, a 20% territory, awesome. But generally speaking, they'll want, our, uh, want the 30%. So on that example, million dollars, 30%, we need 300K. A lot of first home buyers, or, or indeed anyone that's maybe in their 20s and 30s, I'm assuming here, but uh, they might not have 300K to. Give to a commercial property investment when they're wanting to buy their own home to live in. So, mm. yeah, that that's a, a a real roadblock for a lot of people is just the mere fact that they need to come up with a a much larger deposit. It's, it's
2: a pretty decent amount of money and one would assume this is why a lot of people do joint ventures when they go into commercial property. so a joint venture is where you partner with multiple people it might be one other it might be a couple of others um, to buy the property together therefore your investment up front is not as you know big as that 300k it might be a portion of. Then this is, and this is where my personal risk profile, and I think many other people would echo this: more people, more problems. I'm like joint venture. I don't know if I want that. That seems like you know, there's more paperwork involved. There's other people's um, personal circumstances thrown to the mix of that. And I'm not saying like I'm anti-commercial by any means. Like I think it's comes down to an education factor that I lack the knowledge personally um, and many other people would. Maybe it's even worth us getting a commercial property specialist in for an episode Mm. just so we can thrash it out in a bit more detail.
1: Yeah. And just someone who lives and breathes it every day I think Mm. would be beneficial. So yeah, let's definitely do that. But I would say, and Glenn and I were actually talking about this literally yesterday, uh, it's common for business owners to buy commercial premise to run their business out of so they can rent it off their, their, own business or, or their own super fund or whatever that might be. So so that's pretty cool. That's a, a, a sort of a win-win. They're investing in real estate as well as running their business out of. So that, that's mm. probably the most common uh, I have seen. But the attractive part of commercial property is definitely the yields. The yields mm. are generally a lot higher than residential returns. So talking a lot of the time six, seven percent gross yield plus which is which is pretty awesome. Uh, but on the flip side, understand the vacancies and, and where that commercial building is located and what you are attracting uh, based on that type of building. So we know retail in the last couple of years has struggled a little bit for various reasons. So if it's solely relying on retail, then you, you may have high vacancies. So just understanding that not everyone needs a commercial property to, to lease, whereas um Living-wise, residential is a little bit more, I suppose, lower risk. Yeah.
2: Now, as a final closing question, and probably we can answer this on, on a high level, uh, probably one that we can loop back in with a broker as well at some point. But Elise asks, how do I increase my serviceability on a lower wage? Um, so, I th- And she's put in commas, um, one PPR and one IP. So, she sounds like she owns one property that she lives in and owns. Uh, and uh, the other one is an investment property. So how can you increase serviceability? Because my naive mind goes to, well, it is based on your uh, salary is a is a large factor as to your serviceability of a loan. Am I right in thinking that?
1: Your naivety is correct, Emily. Um, look, I think <laughs> given the fact that there's one investment property and one principal place of, of resident, they've both got, debt, I'm assuming. So Mm. if we can get the debt down on both of those, or at least one of them, that's going to increase the servicing because the running costs of of our life is going to be a lot less, right? So it may just be a time thing. I, I need to spend the next two, three years uh, decreasing the debt in my life, which I would attack the principal place of residence debt first, which is going to therefore increase my serviceability. Um, earn more income is is the obvious one. Spend less, there's only a certain amount you can do of that, right? So they're probably the main three tips is pay down your debt uh, a little bit more. Hopefully we can increase some equity, which helps, uh, but then yeah, can we increase our income over that journey? And and I've um, been in this situation myself where I've actually had to go and earn a higher income just to get myself my next loan. Uh, and it was never going to be a long-term outcome for me to go and do this, but it was just a, a 12-month, um, 18-month period where, okay, if I can show an extra 20 grand, that's going to give me what I need. So think strategically about that and it may mean a conversation with a mortgage broker and reverse engineer it I love using that term to say can we what would it take for me to get my next loan and and they can draw it out in black and white for you
2: And just a side note that's quite relative as well, um, in terms of increasing your salary and potentially that comes in the form of a pay rise or a promotion within your work, um, do jump on to our other little family member, um, the Careers Podcast, because I know there's episodes in there that talk about how to go about doing that. And sometimes it's as simple as asking the question, to be honest. Uh, And if that's going to be the difference between you being able to buy in the next 12 months versus the next three years, that might be a good incentive to jump on and learn a bit more about that. So, go and check out the careers podcast um, if you haven't already. Now, that does bring us to the end of today's episode. Um, We seem to have crossed off quite a few questions from our community and we are so thankful for you submitting those questions. I think One thing that John and I would like to do more of for you is to bring in specialists. We are working on getting a solar specialist to come in because that has been a prominent question in the Facebook group and also through our own social media channels. So we certainly will look into having a specialist in that space. As we mentioned today, a commercial specialist as well would be definitely helpful. So we will look into that. But any other specialists that you would like us to interview on the podcast, please hit us up either via the Facebook group. So the My Millennial Money Facebook group or on our respective um, social media channels or emails, whatever way you see fit, Um, reach out and let us know who you'd like us to speak to. Even better, if you have a recommendation of somebody that you um, know is really good at what they do, feel free to let us know who they are as well and we will certainly make contact.
1: Totally, yeah. And and look, the other thing, if you need help out there, if you need a mortgage broker, financial planner, buyer's agent, whoever it may be, um, just go to sortyourmoneyout.com forward slash get help and um, yeah, we can put you in touch with someone who may be able to assist you.
2: Most definitely. We've got trusted people all across the nation. So um, hit us up there and we'll be able to help you out. Well... It's been a pleasure, John. It has. Until next week, we will certainly be here as we are every single week, bringing the goods around property for you, uh, and we will speak soon.
1: Hooroo.
0: We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.
1: Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education.
2: That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps.
1: I've created the Solvair Online Academy open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space.
2: And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate, to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers.
1: Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and